Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, just your average English major student, working through the Bible, chapter by chapter, and today we've hit a milestone. We are in chapter 12 of the Book of Romans. Uh, It's going to be smooth sailing from this point forward as far as understanding what Paul's trying to say. Uh, It may not be as smooth sailing as far as what Paul is trying to tell us to do. Um, We'll talk about that. We'll talk about a lot of things today. Um, This is going to be a great chapter. Um, Much needed. This chapter is going to start to sound a lot more like Deuteronomy. So these two podcasts, as they get to their conclusion, um, are going to really overlap here at the end. Um, And I think that's fitting. Uh, feels, Feels right. So come along for the ride. So uh, today it's going to be interesting. Um, we're going to focus specifically on Romans chapter 12. And Romans 12 uh, is unfortunately, I feel like the verses that I just uh, have a lot, of, a lot of opinions on as far as just current um uh, ways that the church is handling things. Um, and I want to be respectful to that. Like I don't necessarily want this episode to just be a full critique, I guess I would say, in a very negative way of where the church is in America right now. I also feel like that's going to date this episode quite a bit um, if uh, the church happens to do some things that change in the next five to ten years. Um, So I don't want to necessarily focus on that so much, but there will be quite a bit of comparison just through what the church is doing and how I think we could be better at it. And I think that that's good and wise. And I think that um, as long as we take that with a grain of salt of just also knowing that God is the one that ultimately guides his church and his Holy Spirit is the one that guides his church. And um, if we really keep Romans 12 at the forefront of our mind and Romans 8, I guess I would say in the background. Um, Romans 8 kind of provides that um, assurance and um, I guess I would say like mystical component to the church and how the Holy Spirit is really working throughout all of our lives to really define how we behave. And yet there is responsibility on our part and Romans 12 is definitely that especially. You'll see that throughout this last section, a lot of Paul's theology now gets to be applied to specific situations, and we're going to see why I was uh, harping so much about um, Paul really talking about unity between Jews and Gentiles as opposed to Romans being a salvation tract of a kind in which it's trying to persuade people to become Christians. Um, We'll talk about how Paul's focus on unity gets uh, lived out in this chapter quite a bit. Um, We'll talk about even just a lot of the things we've been talking about from 9 to 11 about the Jewish people and how he sums all that up in chapter 12 at the very beginning. Um, There's a lot to look forward to in this chapter, and I think think it's helpful to remember that um, when we get to this section of Paul, Paul typically will always have a section in his books where he kind of switches from really his more... uh, theological frameworks and begins to talk about um, how those frameworks should be applied. Um, I do think that uh, it's been grossly exaggerated in a huge way to kind of narrowly divide like Romans 1 through 11 to Romans 12 through 16. I don't think that they're meant to be separate pieces or treaties, Um, and I definitely don't think that... um, we should read Romans 1 through 11 without Romans 12 through 16. Um, If you remember earlier on in this podcast, there's actually a whole book that um, Scott McKnight writes that says uh, reading Romans 1 through 11 won't make sense unless you read Romans 12 through 16. So um, there's a lot of important things to be uh, 
unpacked in this. It will, like I said, be quicker episodes probably because we won't spend as much time trying to explain what does Paul mean by the word salvation here and what does Paul mean by the word um, justify here and you know those those types of things. I think we'll we'll spend less time on, um, but we will have to wrestle with what he is saying and uh, specifically you will see a focus um, and and this actually is something that I wish more uh, scholars would write more about is um, a focus on Paul's perspective on how Christians are to manage life with one another um, and how they're to manage life with people outside of the faith um, and how humility and suffering play a role in reframing our minds for how we are to be in relationship with other people um, and how um conceit and pride and uh, um, even a sense of like trying to stand for the truth um, can oftentimes be um, seen as a negative for Paul. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how um, a lot of uh, his work in this chapter is really, I think, um, uh, meant to give some things to the church um, that show a sense of humility towards one another. Um, remember again that um, the focus of Romans is that there are two separate groups of people that are living in one church, and both groups have a sense of moral superiority to the other. One group thinks that they are following God more correctly than the other because they are the Jews and they have this history with God that goes back all the way to all the Old Testament times, and um, they are continuing to follow the Old Testament law code, and they are continuing to live in that and remain in that, and they are um, uh, feeling a sense of, I guess I would call it, uh, um, fear of these Gentiles that seem to be doing things outside of that, and um, they want to correct that. On the other hand, we have a group of people namely the Gentiles, that are um, uh, feeling that the Jews are in some way, shape, or form um, missing, <laughs> missing the, the, the forest for the tree, uh, basically, and uh, that there is a sense in which um, Paul's teaching seems to allow for them not to have to do too much. Um, and even the uh, Jerusalem Council, uh, founded in Acts 15, seems to indicate that they um, don't have to have too much burdens put on them from the Old Testament. And as a result of that, um, they really believe that there are things that they can do that are not necessarily wrong. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, actually, you don't have to imagine it because I think we live in a current time period where that also is at the forefront of pretty much every church debate it feels like is exactly that what are the things that are sins and what are the things that are not sins um, we're still debating that question today it's different topics you know uh, we're no longer debating whether or not eating bacon is a sin or not but we're still debating those kinds of questions and as a result um, uh, there's still that sense of uh, tension today that the church was experiencing way back here uh, in this time period. And so Paul, in this chapter, I think, gives a very practical way to handle those kinds of situations after he kind of lays out all of the like meat of how this shouldn't be an issue in the first place and really kind of laying out like how to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and particularly the law and to look at Jesus and what Jesus did and how the law factors in with Jesus. And we, we talked about that, right? I, I've summarized almost every chapter of this podcast um, and I think uh, I want to do a very short one here and say that Romans 1 through 11 is just one long treaty of how Christianity and Judaism can get along. Um, that's really the summary. Um, and from chapter 1 to chapter 11, it's all about that. Um, and you'll have uh, chapters that do focus on a specific part of Christianity. You'll have chapters that focus on a specific part of Judaism. But the ultimate point here is still the same. It's to try and get Jews and Christians to get along. And that's what we've been going through for the past 11 chapters. So now that he's done that, um, we now have to 
revisit some of the issues that are happening in the church and uh, really looking at what it means to be someone that's living as a Christian in relationship with other Christians and how Jews and Gentiles should live in relationship to one another. So that's where we're going to start. Let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, so you see what I mean? This is starting to sound a lot like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, And if you're paying attention, you'll notice a lot of uh, parallels with the Sermon on the Mount. He starts there with a therefore. Um, This is very typical of Paul when he's summing up everything that he said before. And in this case, I really do think that he's summing up chapters 1 through 11. Uh, The whole argument he's laid out from the very beginning all the way up until 11 is now um, being summed up. But there's definitely a part of this too that's that's summing up um, specifically chapters 9 through 11. Um, He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. What's the mercy he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the mercy that happened at the very end of chapter 11. Remember he talked about how God is summing up all of Jews and Gentiles under disobedience so that they then can be forgiven. Jews now are going through a period of time in which they're in disobedience. The Gentiles once were in a period of time where they were disobeying God, and so everyone now is under a state of disobedience, and now um, God can have mercy on them all. And that's the mercy, mercy he's talking about here, is in view of that mercy, in view of the fact that God is being so generous in giving the gift of mercy to everyone and restoring the relationship between both Jews and Gentiles and himself, what are they to do? Are they to just sit back and enjoy that mercy? And that's fine? No, we talked about that in chapter 11, right? They have a responsibility. They have to remain within that mercy. That's the important thing that he talked about in Romans 6. And once again, we're going to see what he says. He's going to use a metaphor here that's really interesting. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So this idea here is very much close to what we were talking about in chapter 6, and I think he's paralleling here what he was talking about in chapter 6. Remember he said um, that we're to die with Christ Jesus and be buried with him in baptism and then risen again to new life, and we're to die to our flesh um, and then live according to the Spirit. Um, That is something that I think he's pulling once again and now using the metaphor of a sacrifice to represent that image, right? Um, We've got um, our bodies now as what we're offering up 
um, instead of the flesh. Um, and this body that we're offering up as a living sacrifice is what then becomes uh, something that is holy and pleasing to God even. So this idea here is really interesting. I think a lot of times Christians argue that the body is um, evil um, and that the body is something that uh, it that causes us to sin. Um, and when we look at Paul in Romans, um, that's definitely not the case. The, the uh, word that Paul will use quite often to describe that part of ourselves, um, and we talk about this in Romans 7, is the flesh. The flesh is the part of us that makes us want to um, sin in a way. And uh, we, I talked about even how flesh itself is a neutral verb, um, or a neutral noun, sorry. Um, it's something that you can see in animals all the time, and uh, it's a part of our our own life is just there's a part of ourselves that wants to and desires certain things and those things can lead to sins because it is so selfish and so animalistic um, it acts like an animal and not like someone that God wants us to act like and so uh, a huge part of looking at passages like this is to see that um, the body itself is actually the thing that's offered as holy and pleasing right like there is a potential to be able to offer your body up as something very holy and pleasing to God in the same way that um, in the Old Testament times um, when they offered up an animal on the altar um, they couldn't offer up like a blemished animal it had to be an animal that was pure and holy um, and the idea here I think is he's contrasting that with the view of God's mercy God has forgiven the people and as a result when they offer up their bodies their bodies are holy and pleasing to God um, and now it's something that um, they've re got restored relationship with God God no longer sees their sin they, he sees them as spotless as um, white as snow as Isaiah will say and now they have a responsibility to take that body that God has washed clean and to offer it back to God pleasing to him um, and what this does is this is how we worship God. This is um, what Paul says is true and proper worship. Um, this idea here is that um, it's not necessarily um, just that God wants us to sit and uh bask in his grace, but he also wants us to take that newly cleansed body and offer it up on an altar that um, allows us to then um, give a pleasing aroma to God and offer something back to him for the work that um, he's done in our lives, right? It's um, our chance to get to give something back to him, which is a really beautiful thing. Um, then, after he talks about how um, this is our duty now in response. He's going to then map that duty onto specific things that um, have to do with our relationship with each other. Um, but first, he, he talks about how the um, way that we do this in some way is in relationship to how the rest of the world is behaving. And he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So his idea here, this is really interesting. Um, uh, word in Greek um, for conform. The word is the word that we get the word schematic from. Um, so do not be um, in some way like do not have like the world offer a schematic to your life in which you adopt the world schematic into your own life and make that the building blocks of how you operate in daily life. I think a lot of people think that like. Um, this means that we are to be completely and totally uh, segregated from the world. Um, and they will often use this verse as like um, a proof text of sorts to say that like um, we're not to be in the world or uh, do anything in the world and we're to be um, within our own Christian communities. And um, if you're in the world and around non-Christians, you'll be influenced by them um, and a lot of different things like that. And uh, a lot of, I think a lot of those arguments come from a verse like this. I personally don't think that that's what Paul's getting at here. I think he's looking at the sense in which um, the understanding of how the Gentiles were living in that time period is very similar to how the secular world lives today, that's for sure. Um, but the idea here is not necessarily not to affiliate with anyone outside of the faith. The idea is in some way that there are certain schematics for viewing 
life and the world that the world has, specifically around death, specifically around religion, specifically around what are the ideals that we should be working towards, um, that um, he views as things that if we were to accept those schematics for how to live, um, it would in a huge way um, make us um, different people than the people that uh, uh, he wants us to be. And um, instead, what he pits that against instead of allowing the world to put schematics in our head about how we are to um, live and behave and think about the world um, he instead he instead wants us to be transformed um, by the renewing of our mind this is a really interesting um, uh, way to frame it because you know he's focused specifically on offering our bodies as a living sacrifice that all tracks but being transformed by the renewing of your mind is a really really new thought in his understanding we haven't talked about the mind all that much apart from Romans 7 remember in Romans 7 I talked about how the mind was about the only thing that could uh attempt to uh resist the flesh and that um in the, in Romans 7 there was this battle going on between the flesh and the mind and uh, the flesh always tended to win over the mind and the mind was then stuck in this perpetual cycle in which the flesh was always overcoming the mind and that we needed the holy spirit to really come in and revitalize us right and here he's going to really take that idea of the mind and talk about how um, now that mind gets transformed through Romans 8 um, and is something that actually we have a responsibility to really continue to do. Um, and I think in a huge part, um, the transforming of our mind is done through what he says above in verse 1, where he says, offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the idea here is that... Um, there is a sense in which your mind will not be transformed unless we are in some way, shape, or form in a mode of sacrifice, in a mode of offering ourselves back to God. Um, and instead of allowing the world's dictations of, um, especially I think with like um, trying to fight for the things that we need in this life, trying to fight for food, trying to fight for um uh, whatever is our rights and whatever is our dues, um, he really wants to take on a different perspective of how to live. And in particular, instead of trying to fight for freedom or even fight for justice or fight for any of these ideals that we might put in place, he believes that at the forefront, um, we are to live from this sacrificial perspective. And that then, having that sacrificial framework that comes, I think, from Jesus and how he lived his life, especially at the end, I think then dictates how our mind is then transformed over time, how we then become people that are less likely to want to take for ourselves because we have trained our mind to be less... Um, uh, desiring of things for ourselves, and instead are far more likely to be willing to offer ourselves both to God and to other people. I think that's what's what he's getting here. And it's through the repeated action of worship that we then are then transforming our mind. So the idea here is that worship is not just something in which um, we go to on Sunday morning and spend 25 minutes worshiping God. Um, the idea is that worship actually is sacrifice, and it's sacrificing our desires. It's sacrificing our politics. It's sacrificing our own understanding of the world and our own frameworks for understanding the world. It's sacrificing our own fears and the, our own beliefs about how things should be run, and it's giving up all of that in replacement for a love for other people um, that gives other people a sense of, um, I would say in some way, supremacy over us, um, and it's that um, it's that sacrifice that we do that gives worship both to God, but then allows us to have a transformed mind in which we're constantly relying on God and not on other people um, for that sense of um, his transforming action in our lives. That is hard to do, though. <laughs> um, but I do think that that's really at the heart of what he's getting at here. here. And um, he says at the very end of this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So the idea is, is if you go along without that, without that as your like main way of living, if you go along and are not 
necessarily living from that place of sacrifice, um, offering your body up to God um, and letting that transform your mind. Um, if you don't do that, then you're not going to know what God's will is, um, and you're not going to understand what God is trying to say to you in a moment. Um, you have to have this humility and this um, sense of um, myself as the person that needs to be put last and all of the things that I believe internally need to be put last. Um, you need to have that sense for you to be able to fully listen to God. Um, because if you don't, then you're going to be like the Jews and you're going to think you understand everything. And, uh, that's, uh, going to blind you to what God's actually trying to tell you and what God's trying to tell you through Paul. Um, and I think that's why he's getting on to that particular topic here is because that's very applicable to, I would say, honestly, not just the Jews too, because the Gentiles are doing it too. It's applicable to both groups, right? Um, there is a sense in which when we become so self-centered in our belief systems that we can in a huge way, um, not offer those up as a living sacrifice to God. And as a result, that becomes something that, um, makes us blind to what God's trying to tell us and what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, right? There's a lot more we could get into with that, but I think I'll just leave it there. I'll leave you guys to really think about that and meditate on that. It's a really powerful point he's getting at. Verse three, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. And here is a really interesting point. Most people talk about grace in the terms of salvation, and we talk about salvation in the terms of going to heaven when we die. Um, but here, Paul is going to talk about grace in a very different way. This is not a grace that um, is what I would call a forgiving grace. This is a grace in which um, we get certain spiritual gifts or we get certain wills from God, I would say. That's kind of where this comes from is that, you know, knowing God's will is a grace. Um, it's a grace to be able to know what were the mysteries of God and the intentions of God. And so I think that's what he's getting at here in verse three um, is a focus specifically on um, that grace that's given is not this grace that it's going to only happen after the death of us and we are now in the afterlife, but it's a grace that's given as a result of knowing the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment and according with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So the idea here is he then just starts to launch into a lot of things that they are to do and not to do. And the first one he talks about is don't think of yourself as someone that has the entire thing figured out. Um, don't have this sense of... Uh, you know, some type of superiority when it comes to <clears throat> following after God. Don't think of yourself as following God in a way that's better than another person. Um, and don't play this comparison game in your head of you're doing a better job at following God than someone else is, um, no matter what that other person might be doing or acting like. Um, you shouldn't have that sense of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think of yourself. And he, and notice he does say that you can think highly of yourself if that's what you are, but he says, don't think more highly of you than you ought to think of yourself, right? Like, you know, there, there's a point at which, you know, he's not arguing that you can't see the think good things that you're doing in life and have a sense of, um, uh, pride in those things even, um, but, uh, or honor, I guess I should say pride and honor are really interesting because I think a lot of times when we use the word pride, we actually mean the word honor. Um, I feel honor that I'm, um, doing the right thing here more so than I feel pride that I'm doing the right thing here. I think honor works better because pride just kind of implies this kind of negative thing. Whereas I, I really like honor, um, to really kind of get that point across a little bit more clearly. But, um, the idea here is, yeah, don't think of yourself in this like, like moral superiority, um, which is exactly what both groups were doing to one another. Both Gentiles and Jews were looking at one another and thinking that they were on the right path. Gentiles were thinking they had grace and forgiveness figured out. And we're looking at Jews and thinking that the Jews didn't understand grace or forgiveness that well. And Jews were thinking that they had, um, uh, discipline and um, 
uh, strict um, focus and um, specifically uh, like loving God in a way that demands obedience figured out. And uh, both those sides were warring with each other and thought more highly of themselves than they ought to have thought of each other, which is why Paul had to spend 11 chapters breaking down what exactly it meant for those two people groups to have Christianity come on the scene and be um, using Judaism in a huge way. He says, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So the idea here is there is a certain amount of faith that God gives each of us, and it's different. Um, It's not an equal playing field. Some of us have more faith than other people, and we can look inside to ourselves and see how much faith we've been given pretty quickly, I would say. Um, And that should allow us to then understand our own inner lives and understand how much we should think of ourselves and understand where we are in our journey in relationship to other people. Um, It's a very introspective thing that Paul's getting at here is that we're to look inside and see the amount of faith that has been um, distributed to us. And that is then what then indicates it's not our actions, but it's the faith that we have in Jesus that dictates our, um, status, I guess I would say, as people in a community. Um, The more you trust in God, the more you can put yourself in a place of status um, is really what it boils down to. It's not the more um, good things you do, um, the more you have status. It's really the faith that you have inside. The more you um, pray to God for forgiveness and have that sense of um, trust in him, um, the more status you will have as a Christian. That's really what he's getting at here. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we may we though many with uh, from one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So the idea here is that um, he then goes to this body me- metaphor that he really loves to um, articulate in a lot um, of the uh, different books that he writes. Um, and it's interesting here that like a lot of people have argued that Romans 12 is a corporate argument, not an individual argument. And that's, that's always a really hard one to kind of discern in Paul is whether or not Paul is talking about the whole community doing an action together, or if he's talking about the individuals within the community doing these actions, right? Um, is he talking about, um, uh, like basically are we to hear this and say okay this is something that each individual person should do um, or is this something that collectively the church should do and that's a big question that's been asked a lot about different passages in Paul Um, is Paul trying to get people to be more collective thinking or is he trying to get people to be more individualistic and um, each person hears and understands something and then must do it I think here in this case a good argument is to be made for the fact that um, this is a more individualistic passage because he talks about um, each person has a different type of faith attributed to them and then he launches into how each of us right an individualistic perspective once again has one body with many members the members being here by the way um, uh, arms legs different types of (laughs) we don't just have like um like a torso, basically. We have like a head, we have tor- uh, feet, hands. This is something that he breaks down further in uh, Corinthians, actually. And these members do not all have the same functions. The idea being that your hand doesn't do what your feet does, and uh, your hands don't do what your feet do, um, and your head doesn't do what your hands do, right? There's all these different members of our body that do different functions. And the idea here is that he's making the metaphor in comparison with the fact that in Christ, we all though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So the idea here is not to try and think more highly of yourself. This is going back to what he says in Corinthians about does the hand look at itself and think of itself more highly than it should? And does it see itself as the most important part of the body or should it instead um, see itself as part of an ongoing organism that is doing things for the community, right? Um, an interesting thing in the Corinthians passage as well is it actually talks about the weakest parts of the body are actually the things that we um, 
clothe and hide the most um, and because they are the most sacred and the most holy. Um, and so the idea is the weakest in the body is actually the strongest. This goes back to what Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? And so there's a sense in which the body should be taking care of its members in a way that's always focused on the weakest members and not necessarily trying to then make them into the strongest parts of the body, but instead, which is what I think the church is doing today, um, but instead encourage those weaknesses and protect those weaknesses and be um, around those weaknesses and yeah, just be a kind person to those people, right? I think that's the focus of what he gets at in Corinthians in that passage. And I think it's important to take all of that into what we're reading here. This is just a shorter version of what he gets at in Corinthians. I mean, it's a very important point is that every member is supposed to see themselves in this place of um, taking care of one another. And he's going to talk about that in Romans 14, the strong versus the weak. Um, and we'll talk about that once we get there, about this idea of how Christians are to behave and they're not to have this hierarchy of sorts in terms of whether it's class or whether it's whether a person's married or not married or whether it's um, whether a person is loud or um, not loud or um, whether even a person has certain mental disabilities, right? Like there's just a lot of different things that are implied with this that um, we should really take to heart when we're thinking about um, how to treat other people and how to view ourselves as a community of people. He says, we have different gifts according to the grace. Once again, notice that grace now is giving a gift, not just giving forgiveness, um, given to each of us. If, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. So the idea here is this is one of the smaller lists in which um, we get to see a few of the gifts that the Spirit gives, right? Um, the first one is prophesying, and he says, yeah, if you have the gift of prophesying, then prophesy what? In accordance with your faith. Again, it all comes down to how much faith you have, that how much of a gift you're going to be able to show. And again, it should not be this thing in which we put on pedestals people that have more faith than other people. Um, remember, this is all about um, each member of the body, no matter how much it does, um, is valued and should be valued by the community. Um, if you have someone that's evangelizing every week um, and is bringing in a fold of a hundred people every week, that's amazing. If you have a person that evangelizes once every year and that one person maybe never even comes to faith, but he is consistently doing that. He is, should be just as appalled and just as valued as the person that's evangelizing 100 people every week. Um, and that's really the point of what Paul's getting at here is there's no, there's we shouldn't be thinking about it in terms of there being strong and weak in that way. Um, we should be thinking about it in terms of everybody as a part of this body and everybody should be valued in that same way as part of the body. And no matter how much faith we have that allows us to live out a certain gift, it doesn't ultimately mean that we are to put people in these lower stratospheres of faith and make them out to be people that need to work on that. Because remember, it's not something they can work on. It's something that is gifted as a gift from the spirit. And so that's how we are to treat people as something in which um, whatever their faith has been given, that's how they are to live, right? Um, if prophesying in accordance with your faith, if serving, then serve. If teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. Encouragement here, I'll say a brief word about. That's the one that I think is probably wrongly translated. Um, there, there is an definitely a component of encouragement to it, but it really means to extort or to preach even like this is the closest we get to the word for preaching. Um, it's not necessarily preaching, but it is a, a, a kind of like the, the a root verb here in the Greek is the word to call or to cry aloud. It's the uh, word that's used uh, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and uh, um, is a voice crying out in the wilderness, right? Um, coming back to Isaiah. So like, it, I, I don't want you guys to think of it as just like a kind of encouragement in which you're just like, <laughs> uh, walking up to someone and telling someone a kind thing it's more of a it's more of an extorting like you should do this thing you know calling people to action almost right um that's that's what i would say with that word i, th I think that that kind of conveys the wrong meaning there with encourage if it is giving then give generously if it is to lead do it diligently if it is to show mercy 
do it cheerfully. So the idea here is that we each have all of these different gifts, and there are way more, by the way. This is just a small list of Paul's, and you'll see that he has different lists, and he adds on a few more in different books of the Bible, but this one at least focuses specifically on these actions in particular, and he talks about how they are to do each one of these in a way that is um, uh, responsible for um, a specific thing, right? So like um, if they're leading, they're supposed to do that in a diligent way. If they're um, having mercy, they're supposed to do that in a cheerful way. If they're giving, they need to give in a generous way, right? Like there's, you know, all these different things that um, kind of factor into how we are to behave. And Paul sees all of this going back to the idea of not having this very selective way of looking at people and kind of classifying people based off of hierarchies and deciding whether or not a person's worth giving something to, or if, you know, like to him, the idea is to really put yourself last and to put all of those hierarchical decisions in the away and just um, allow yourself to be led by the Holy Spirit in these kinds of matters. So then he talks about how love must be sincere. This is, I think, kind of the outworking of all this, right, is that when you are living this way, your love is sincere. And he talks about how we should hate what is evil and cling to what is good, right? That is a thing in Paul. Like, there is a sense in which there are certain actions that the world is doing that we need to hate um, and need to instead cling to what is good. But notice here the word cling. Um, the word in the Greek here is to join or to unite, right? So his idea here is we need to be united in that, in that like, um, with one another. And um, if we're not united, then we're not being able to live out what he really is getting at here. Um, the idea is not just to go around as this little individual person hating everyone else that's evil. The idea is to unite yourself to what is good so that you can then have this sense of community with one another, yes, but it's also giving you a sense of, um, I think, in a huge way, um, allowing you to always be in a place in which you're always sacrificing your own needs and desires and reframing the way you think and operate so that you're um, uh, always united with one another in your stand against evil, right? But in a way that's kind, I would say. Be devoted to one another in love, right? The idea here, don't be doing what you're doing currently as Jews and Gentiles. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So the idea is to really put other people in a status of honor. Um, treat other people with honorable, like see other people and the beauty that they have and give honor to that. That's one of the things I see the least done in churches is we don't really give a sense of honor to one another anymore, right? We don't give a sense of validation to anyone anymore. Um, we tend to be too self-centered and so focused on whether or not we are living the correct way um, that we don't oftentimes look at how other people are living and give them the honor that they deserve. We tend to reserve that for just the church leaders when they bring them up on stage and give them a rounding chorus of applause or something like that every now and then. But there's a sense in which we should be doing that every time we are in relationship with one another um, and noticing those kinds of things and being far more likely to point those out than even the negatives in people's lives. I think it would be far more uh, of a good thing to really have that at the forefront of our relationships with one another. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. This is a really interesting one. For him, this idea is that there is a part of the Holy Spirit and living out the spiritual life that requires a sense of excitement and zeal and determination and um, uh, a sense in which, like, um, energy, I guess I would say, um, and he really, I think, is pulling back on Romans 8 here with this idea of the Holy Spirit being the source of that and the conduit of that power. He talks about being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, right? Like, um, all things that are easy to say, very hard to do, right? Um, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. These are all actions that he's calling people to do. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. These are all just small little commands he's giving the people to show how they are to live 
in relationship with one another. Hospitality is a big one that I see not being done today. People are just not willing to invite people over to their houses anymore. And I would give my generation the biggest knock on the uh, head for this one. Like we just do not um, tend to do this as much as we should. Um, And I wish we did. Like I, I wish that we, especially people of my age that are married. I think um, I see this more with my generation than anything is just a tendency. Honestly, and maybe it's not even my generation, but, but it, just, it just feels like as soon as you get married, like um, I think you kind of go in on yourself and focus only on your own family. And uh, there's a sense in which, you know, um, you are required, especially if you're married, to open up your house to other people and practice that hospitality. Um, And I think that that needs to be done more often and in a way um, that's uh, um, very generous to other people. Um, And uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think people don't realize that um, that's harder for someone that's um, in a situation in which they're like either living in an apartment or living, you know, in a place that, they're having to live paycheck to paycheck, right? Whereas if you're in a family situation and you have two incomes instead of one income, um, generally you're able to live that. I'm not saying in every circumstance you're able to do that, but like there's a sense in which there's an added responsibility on the part if that's your cir- circumstance in which you should be doing that. And that's something I just don't see in churches nearly enough um it's that tendency to want to do that um nowadays the church almost has to mandate it through like oh we're meeting community groups in this house or something like that um and almost make it like a structured thing that has to happen instead of people organically wanting to open up their home to other people one of the most impactful times in my life was just that a family uh, in their 40s to 50s decided to open up their home to pretty much anyone and did like an organic Bible study. And, uh, you know, like that really affected me throughout my life, just having that home to go to every now and then and just listen to people talk about scripture and uh, get to enjoy food every week. And we did it every Sunday night. And yeah, there's there's a lot of vitality to hospitality in that. Um, And I think that goes hand in hand with sharing with people who are in need. And I do wish that we would invite people more on the fringes of society to our homes more because I think it would affect people a lot more deeply if we did that. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This idea is really interesting because, you know, um, this is something that Jesus will say, right? Um, It's something that's one of the hardest things that he says is pray for those that persecute you um, and have this sense in which um, even the Psalms of the Old Testament are kind of reworked. You know, the Psalms, they they curse people that uh, persecute them. And there are some imprecatory Psalms in there um, that happen in Uh, that the Psalms live out. Um, And here Paul seems to see some of those Psalms now as being reworked. And the idea is that God is now going to be the one that judges and we are to be the ones that bless people, even if they persecute us, which is a really, really poignant point for Paul, I would say. Um, It's a point that um, in this time period, at least, would be very um, hard because they were enduring a lot more persecution than we do today. Um, but I do think that this is part of his mentality is that, uh, as a Christian, we are to live in this way that's very focused on, um, uh, being loving to people that are not necessarily loving back to us, which is a really hard thing to do. Um, and it's something that I think the church is largely at this point, at least tried to avoid. Um, I think, I think the church has instead tried to fight fire with fire. A lot of times when people try to force them down certain pathways or try and ask them to do certain things they disagree with. Um, and instead of, uh, responding in a way that is trying to bless those people and trying to love those people, they've instead tried to legislate that out, (laughs) um, and tried to force them not to have those opinions anymore. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a detriment to the church that, uh, that we've done that as opposed to, um, blessing them through prayer, um, through praying for them every night, um, through diligently thinking and praying to God about our own positions on certain matters and having a more sense of 
love for other people than anything else. Um, and this goes even this goes even for like people that have different doctrinal opinions than us, right? Like we could I apply everything I just said there to doctrinal opinions. A lot of the church will tend to call each other hypocrites if we believe too differently. If I were a person that said, I believe Mormons go to heaven, right? Like if I said that on this podcast, there'd be so many people, by the way, I don't, but like, well, I honestly don't know there, but like, you know, even if I said that, right, which again, I don't believe, but um, even if I said, I believed that, like there would be a huge swath of Christians that would treat me as someone that is now a heretic. Um, and I think that that's just, um, unfortunate because, uh, at the end of the day, that's not living this out. That's not living out this kind of, um, uh, to call someone a heretic is to curse them in my opinion. And, uh, I think we honestly should be blessing them. Um, and it's something that I see that we do a lot in debates and talks about theology. It's why theology is not really fun for me to talk about anymore. Um, there's just a huge sense of that in the church today that I wish we were better at. Um, and I wish, I wish we had not become so inward focused on our own self and our own ideologies about how things are and how we've become more and more like the Jews of Paul's time, I think, as time has gone on as a church. And I think that that's something that we really need to reconsider how Paul is asking the church to behave um, and how to have this sense of giving ourselves up as a sacrifice to God and what that actually means for our own inner life and our own minds and how we are to die to that old self of how we think about the world and how we understand the world and let our minds instead be transformed by that sacrifice that we do. I think that's really at the forefront of it all. Anyway, I could go on with that, but um, yeah, he talks about how we should rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. <laughs> Notice here that uh, it does not say go and quote Romans eight twenty eight to a person that's mourning. Um, instead, mourn with them. <laughs> mourn with them if they're mourning and rejoice with them if they're rejoicing. Don't try and resolve that time um instead sit with them in whatever season of life they're in if they're mourning then mourn with them if they're rejoicing then rejoice with them live in harmony with one another um <laughs> like they're not doing right now currently do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position so don't just see yourself as someone that um has your own group of friends that uh, all go running every Sunday um, after church and all go um, play board games at the night. And that's the only types of people that you interact with are the people that are in your churches that are around the same um, class as you. And uh, don't just see yourself as a person that that's your f groups and that's where you stay. Um, but instead, associate with people that are in different areas of life than you associate with people of other races than you associate with people that have different um positions that are of a lower position than you um talk to the person that works at fedex understand what's going on in his story how are things in his life if you work at some place that's better than that right um uh, and I mean like in the shipping area, not in like the upper management. <laughs> um, talk to someone that works like blue collar jobs. Um, talk to people that work um, uh, service industry jobs, right? Um, associate yourself with as many people that have these positions that uh, are lower in society than other positions, right? Um, and be a person that um, is willing to associate and not just um, say, well, these aren't my people, so like I'm not going to associate with with them, um, but instead be willing to associate with anyone, no matter their, their class, right? Do not be conceited, right? Don't think of yourself as someone that's a part of a group and um, you're only going to be involved in that group of people because those are your people. Instead, think of yourself as someone that associates with anyone and everyone. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So the idea here is that there is a sense in which Paul does see if the world has some ethical framework for understanding life. And uh, that framework um, is something that we as a church are not doing. And as a result, uh, 
um, we're being judged by the world for, Paul does see that there is a responsibility for us to at least attempt to be able to do what is right in the eyes of them, right? Be doing what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if the whole culture is moving in a direction, at least attempt it. Like, don't just like grain in and, you know, um, say you're completely wrong and then just stand there with your, um, uh, like Bible in front of you and say, no, this is wrong. Instead, attempt to live in a way that is right for everyone. He's saying like, you know, it's not going to always happen. Like there's just some things, but if you just kind of like have this mentally, uh, stubborn perspective in which you just think you're right and the rest of the world is wrong and you don't even attempt to do anything about it, right? Like if you don't attempt to understand it, don't attempt to, um, uh, listen um, and attempt to really come to an understanding about it. Like, um, if you don't attempt to uh, hear out their side of the story, right? Um, then I would say that you're not living this out. You know, like this is part of what it is. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So don't try and antagonize people by voting in someone that forces half of the country to do something they don't want to do, you know? Um, like, you know, that that's one way we could say that you're not living at peace with other people, right? You know, like there's a sense in which... Um, uh, I think it's our responsibility to have this sense of peace um, with each other and to have this sense of love for one another that is very different than um, what I see us currently doing right now. I guess I'll just say that. Um, instead, um, we should have this position of um, the ways that we believe may be something that is being persecuted. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we then need to respond by trying to retake all the power that we may feel we have lost. Um, but instead, we need to uh, think about it from how Jesus would do that. Um, and oftentimes, Jesus was content with letting people run away from him. Um, he was content with even going further and saying things that he believed in and letting people live out a life outside of him. Um, and he didn't just look at the world and hate it alone. He also looked at Jerusalem and wept over it like, um, a child, like, like a mother would over, um, her children, you know, um, that's something that you see in the new Testament. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind is that there is a sense of responsibility on our part to have this sense of peace with everyone. Um, Paul will say in another place, be all things to all people, which I think is one of the hardest things he's ever asked the Christians to do. Um, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. So the idea being don't try and gain, um, a sense of, um, uh, justice through your own means, but instead, uh, allow God to be the one that repays for an action that was wrong, um, and trust in God to punish instead of you punishing. There's a lot of things here, even just with like how Christians might handle crimes. Um, how are we to handle crimes? There's a lot of questions you could open up here about capital punishment and just the things that Paul seems to be indicating here. A lot of, a lot of things. Um, like I said, uh, this is, this is a hard chapter. This is a chapter where, um, we really need to sit with ourselves and ask these hard questions. On the con contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's an interesting line because this is something that's actually uh, a quote from Proverbs. Um, and uh, the idea here is very simple, um, right? Like this, as in most of Proverbs, Proverbs is one of those books that just has a few like little one-line quotes. Uh, quotes. Um, and this is actually found in uh, chapter 21, I believe. Let me make sure on that real quick. Chapter 25, verse 21 um, and 22. And yeah, the call here is that uh, when you are kind to people, 
And even when they persecute you, you're actually making their life something in which uh, they then have to like re-understand the world because you're doing the direct opposite of what the world would normally do in that kind of circumstance. Um, and in many cases, it makes them feel bad for what the actions they just did, right? Um, and so that's just a rule of thumb is that if you live this way, it is in a way fighting back. It's just fighting back in a very different way, you know? Um, and it's a way in which I think uh, I wish we often did more of in our in our time period. Um, we aren't. Uh, I think we're too aggressive, um, and we tend to. I I really do believe like this, and this is this is something people can disagree with me on, and that's fine. Like, um, but like I really do believe that Christianity calls us to live in a way that's more passive than we are living currently. We'll just put it that way. Um, I think there's a passiveness to this entire. Um, chapter that I think is justified Um, and I think you can see it through the way that we are to sacrifice our own bodies um, as a thing that is holy um, to God and let that be the transformative action in our life Um, that then finishes with this chapter with a line that um, I think is very important do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good and I think here he's kind of saying something very profound about the idea of that if we responded in kind, if we responded with trying to get vengeance, if we were trying to punish people in the same way they were punishing us, right? And if we were trying to play the world's game of power struggles and try and get the power, you know, back that we've lost or something like that, what happens if we become overcome by evil? Because we're living the same way they're living, you know? And instead, we need to overcome evil with good and live in a completely different way that's completely um, antithetical to how the world operates and how those power struggles work. Um, And maybe that should influence our politics. Maybe that should influence how we help other people on the street. Maybe that should influence all of our life, you know? Um, This was something that really hit home for me I would say in my early 20s is when I really first started to realize what this meant as a Christian. And it had a profound impact on the way that I viewed the world. Um, a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people might say that, uh, you know, I became, uh, I'm, I would consider myself a moderate politically. And a lot of people would say that um, that period of time is, was influenced by college and just getting out on my own and stuff like that. But as I've done a lot of thinking about it and meditating on it, I would actually say a lot of that influence happened more so from reading scripture around that time period. I really read scripture for the first time in my life at that point. And I remember coming across passages like this, and I remember just realizing what the gravity of these kinds of passages meant. Um, and I would actually say the Bible cost more of my, um, uh, I guess political influence than anything. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that I've thought about a lot, um, ever since. And granted I was in churches that, um, weren't afraid to preach those kinds of sermons. I was in a United Methodist church, so that, that definitely had its influences, but I would say, yeah, like, um, uh, that, that really started to, affect me in deep ways. And, uh, I think that a huge part of, uh, the way that I see the world now is through these kinds of chapters that really seem to be arguing for a very different kind of way to even be a Christian than we are living today, where, um, it is more about these kinds of power struggles, how that works out with, you know, voting and things. I really don't know. I've never really figured that out. I don't know if that means that Christians should never try to vote for a candidate, you know, um, that's something that I've, I've meditated on quite a bit and it's still something that I've never come to a firm conclusion on. Um, because I really think that, you know, there, there are some Christians I've read on this topic that would argue that like Christianity should be its own like separate state of sorts and that like, um, it shouldn't really attempt to, influence the wider state at all but it should just be its own separate thing um which you know like uh there there are some interesting problems with that i think that sounds a little bit more like a monastery or a monastic tradition in in, in a huge way um and then there are other people that 
you know, argue that it should be entirely involved in politics and every, every part of it should be influenced. Um, and that that's okay. But yeah, you, you, you kind of end up in a, in a, what I would call a, um, a catch 22, um, with that situation where if you are trying to influence that kind of state, then you, the state, you know, and, um, our country, then you tend to force people to live in ways that are not in alignment with what they want to do. And I don't believe in that. And yet if you don't do any of that kind of stuff, then you also tend to be separate from the world in a huge way. That means that like, you're not, um, you're not necessarily influencing life the way you possibly could. Um, and you tend to be more monastic. And so, yeah, it's, it's a weird situation I find myself in with that, where I'm not comfortable with either with saying that Paul is indicating one or the other. Um, although if I were to say which side of the fence he seems to fall down on the most, we'll talk about this in chapter 13, um, when he talks about the government authorities and that kind of thing. Um, I would say he falls down more so on the monastic side of that fence than on the, um, uh, influencing side of that fence. Um, and uh, that's something we'll talk about in chapter 13. Although it's helpful to know that um, in that time period, the Christians really didn't have any power to be able to influence the Roman government at all. So there really was only one option, which was to kind of just do your own thing <laughs> um, and just pray that the Roman government was okay with you. You know, like they didn't really have that ability to be able to try and influence the way things were. But um, it's deep question that I've always asked is what happens when we do have that ability and how should we act at the very least I would say this chapter should be at the forefront of those types of discussions and we should always be thinking of our actions and the way that we're handling things from this chapter's perspective um, I think this is the way to think about it so hopefully all that helps um, I don't mean to be too political and I hope I've been neutral enough at least that whether you're conservative or progressive, you can come to this and still resonate with it because at the, at the part of it, this isn't about American politics. It's just about how our mindset should be when in those types of situations. Right. Um, and you know, if you're the type of person that's done all this work and then comes out progressive, comes out conservative, great. Like that's at the end of the day, I just want us to have a active, perspective on this chapter when we are living out our lives. And if you're living that out in whatever political opinion you happen to come down on, like, great, like, you know, because you've done the work, you know, the, the, the point that I guess I'm getting at is I think that we are lazy and have not done that work. And I think we need to do that work in a lot of our thinking when it comes to these kinds of topics. And once you've done that work, if you feel like you've done that work already and you're good, like, great, you know? Um, but I'd ask you to really think about transforming your mind when it comes to those issues, you know? That's ultimately what the point of this is. It's not to try and get you to be one political side. Um, it's just to really think about those kinds of things and um, uh, to really meditate on how we are to live out our opinions um, in a way that is humble and not conceited. I think that's what Paul would have us do with this chapter. So thanks so much for listening, and I'll be back in your feed again next week to discuss Deuteronomy. Bye.